When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Slate's Working Podcast is brought to you by Braintree. Looking to set up payments for your business? Braintree gives your app or website a payment solution that accepts just about every payment method with one simple integration. Plus, we'll give you your first $50,000 in transactions fee-free. To learn more, visit braintreepayments.com slash working. And by Citrix GoToMeeting. When meetings matter, millions choose GoToMeeting. Hold a meeting with anyone from the convenience of your computer, smartphone, or tablet. Try it for free for 30 days by visiting gotomeeting.com and clicking the Try It Free button. That's gotomeeting.com. Try it free. Welcome to Working, Slate's podcast about what people do all day. I'm Laura Anderson, a writer and editor for Slate. On today's episode, we're talking with someone who helps people make one of the biggest transitions of their lives. What's your name and what do you do? My name is Vanessa Pollock. And I am a realtor with Keller Williams, and I have a real estate team in northern New Jersey. What is the licensing process like for real estate brokers? You know, it's different in every state, but in New Jersey, there are lots of options. You can pull off the Band-Aid really quickly and go to real estate school over the course of three weeks, take that school test, and assuming you pass that, go take your state test. And then once you pass that, the state will fingerprint you and then issue your, you your license that you then immediately have to put within a New Jersey brokerage. It can't just float around. It has to, you have to pick a broker to be affiliated with. Okay. Someone who's already established that so you can't just immediately spin off and start your own business? Correct. Okay. To start your own business, you actually have to be a broker, meaning that you have to then take the next licensing class to get your broker's license. And you're only allowed to do that if if you have three years as a full-time agent. What kind of things do you learn in real estate school or classes, and do you actually use them on a regular basis? As people join the team, and I'm sending them to get their license, I say, pay attention, pass the test, and then forget everything you just (laughs) learned. (laughs) The majority of things that are in that licensing process that people learn are not what's going to translate into your everyday work as a realtor in the area. Um, But they do spend a lot of time, and this part is very valuable, reviewing um, what your fiduciary duty is to your client and what your relationship to the client is, whether you're a seller's agent, a buyer's agent, or a dual agent. And they will spend a lot of time going over that so that agents really understand what their role is in a real estate transaction and be sure that they're giving the appropriate service based on uh, who they represent. And are you a dual agent? So if both parties in the purchase or sale of a home are represented by 
to agents under the umbrella of the same brokerage. So for me, it's Keller Williams Midtown Direct in Maplewood, New Jersey. If both agents are under the umbrella of that office, then both agents are considered dual agency. Okay, dual agents. Yeah. But but that's separate from being someone who represents both buyers and sellers in different yeah. situations. Yeah. I started off after being a, a rental agent when I then was assistant for a while. And when I broke off on my own, I really knew that my early career needed to be focused on buyers. It's very hard to convince a seller to allow you to represent and market their home when you've never sold a house before. So you really want to find your footing as a buyer's agent. So I spent the first four or five years really focusing on being a buyer's agent. Then I started to have credibility and some of the people I had sold homes to came back to me and said, hey, turns out we have to move out of state or we need a bigger home. Would you list our home and we'd like to buy a house with you as well? So at that point, I was representing both buyers and sellers. In the last few years, as I've grown my real estate team now, I solely focus on sellers. So does that mean that you prefer working with sellers uh, rather than buyers, or is that just sort of how it worked out as you were building your team? Honestly, I love working with both sellers and with buyers. It's a very different psychology. What's interesting is when you're working with a buyer, you can cast a vision for a future life in a home, and they dream about the children they're going to have there and the life that they're going to have there. And it's filled with excitement and anticipation. When you're working with a seller, even when it's the best case scenario, like they're selling their house to go buy their dream house on their dream block next to their best friend, like it doesn't get any better than where they're moving to, they're still leaving behind a home filled with with memories. And so there's a lot of emotion wrapped up in that. So as agents, we really have to think of ourselves sometimes as counselors and as advisors. And people joke that, should I have a, a psychologist on my card? Because I really have to help walk people through that process. Um, Let's start with selling since that's what you're doing now. What are some of the biggest obstacles and challenges that sellers face? Does it have to do with setting a price or or scheduling open houses or like are there any points of conflict that you often face there? Often sellers have a difficult time thinking of their home as a product or as a commodity. They have so many memories in the home. They have it decorated the way they love it. They have their family photos up the way they like it. And it is can be difficult to transition into thinking of their home as something that needs to look like a catalog. The majority of my homes, the way they're represented and the way they're presented to the buying public is to make them look like all of the online sites that we go to. So I need my listings to look like Restoration Hardware, to look like Pottery Barn, to look like West Elm. And helping a seller transition Um, psychologically about their home and not take it personally that we need to move the furniture around Mm -hmm. and we need to change the window treatments and we need to remove their art and put in different art. That can be difficult. I'm fortunate to work with a stager uh, that I bring in on all of my homes who actually has a degree in social work and she just has this huge heart for people and she understands that it's going to be a difficult process to go from thinking of this as someone's home into thinking of it as, okay, this is now a product we have to sell, and I'm not going to take it personally when I'm told to repaint these rooms and make a lot of design changes in order to get top dollar. This episode of Working is brought to you by Braintree. It's a beautiful thing when your customers want to pay, but what if they could pay every way? 
Braintree lets you accept all forms of payment, including PayPal, Apple Pay, Android Pay, and more. Now you can take them all in over 130 currencies. And as your company grows, Braintree will stay by your side, from your first dollar to your billionth. All it takes is a couple lines of code to get started. To learn more, visit braintreepayments.com slash working. When you are pricing a home, do you have a sort of calculation in which you're taking into consideration different attributes of a home? Or is it more of a gut thing where you just know because other homes have sold for a certain amount, you can probably price this home for that amount too? You know, it's a combination of both because I'm very data-driven in pricing. I need to look at the homes that have sold in the last 90 days to six months and see what's sold in the neighborhood with the same number of bedrooms and bathrooms. And then go through and compare kitchens, bathrooms, renovations, and different attributes of the homes that have sold to what this home have has. But then what I also have to do is I also have to have my finger on the pulse of the current market. And I have to know if homes that are coming on the market right now are all getting six offers, nine offers, 12 offers, that we can actually use that data as a baseline for pricing, but we can go up 3%, 5% above that based on what's currently happening in the market. And because I have three buyer's agents on my team, and we sit down weekly and have weekly team met meetings and talk through the market, I feel like that helps them understand what's coming on the market and me to understand how the buyers are reacting to things and what the buyer's threshold is for pricing. And then I can go back to the seller and say, okay, if I look at the data, the average of the comparable homes that have sold in the last 90 days means that we should price it at 600000 but my buyer's agents are indicating that every single home that they've made an offer on in the last two weeks with clients has gone for 10% over the asking price. Instead of six let's list you at 629 And if the market's going to take you higher, it will still take you higher, but I don't want to leave any dollars on the table for you, and I think the market can bear it. Is there a danger? danger in pricing a home too high? Oh, that's one of the biggest dangers. And that's where you have to find the sweet spot. Because if you price a home too high, in our market, people aren't lowballing. Buyers don't come in and offer below the list price. They just assume you want that price or higher because the majority of our homes are getting multiple offers right now. So you have to be really careful. And, and I tell people, if we've priced it right, you're going to sell between 99 and 103% of your list price. Because if we overprice, then the next move we're making in three to four weeks is dropping the price by forty dollars to $50,000 to move it into a new price point, a whole new category. And at that point, we've lost our marketing momentum. And you really, you want to capture the attention of the market in the first weekend you're on the market. So after you've set a price and staged the home, is the next step scheduling an open house? Yeah, we use a lot of um, task management software and all kinds of things to be sure that we roll out our marketing plan on a very, in a very calculated and deliberate way. So once we've staged the house, we bring in our photographer. We have a professional photographer that I've worked with for years and years, and his team is amazing. We're actually rolling out this next year 3D imaging with him, where we'll have 3D floor plans where from your computer you can feel like you've dropped into each room and you're walking through the house. Then we create a brochure that looks like a magazine. People get catalogs in the mail and they want to buy something that looks like those. So once we've got photography, we need a week to 10 days to process 
the photos, the 3D imaging, and get the brochures designed and ordered and returned. But what we will have already done is have created a timeline from photography to the day that the doors open. And yes, we'll schedule our very first moment is our broker open house. I believe that the broker open house is the most important marketing tool because we want the agents in the area to be able to come preview the house so that then they know which of their clients the house is right for and they can invite them to come and see it over the weekend. And we'll very deliberately have our broker open house on a Thursday morning, begin showings for all of Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and a public open house then on Sunday afternoon. And ideally, if everyone's done their part, we'll be reviewing offers by Tuesday or Wednesday. With with the broker's open house, you're inviting other brokers with other companies to come in. Is that a common uh, industry practice to have broker's open houses before you uh, have a public open house? Absolutely. Most agents are going to have a broker open house to cast the widest net possible to bring in as many agents and as many buyers as they possibly can. Every now and then an agent will choose to have what's called an exclusive listing and they won't necessarily open it up to the entire industry. They'll just open it up to their office and maybe they'll have a private broker open house just for their office. I shy away from that unless the seller doesn't want to be exposed to the internet and they don't want all of their business out across the World Wide Web, then we can keep it in-house like that. Um, But I really feel like it's important to cast that huge, huge net and bring them in as many buyers as possible so that they have more than one offer to review. Do you have a friendly relationship with other brokers in the area or is it kind of competitive? This is an incredibly competitive industry, but it's been a real goal of mine over the last 10 years to be in good relationship with my colleagues. I want all of the agents in this community to say, you know what, if it's Vanessa's listing, I know it's going to be a fair, ethical, honest transaction that's going to be successful for all of our clients. And we're going to get to the closing table, which is what all the clients want. So it's been a real, real important part of my mission to be in good relationship with the agents in my community so that they all want to show my listings and they all want to sell my houses so that it in turn, you know, yields the best results for my clients and for my sellers. When you say unethical behavior or unethical sort of business practices, like what what sort of specific things are you talking about? Like what are ways that some brokers could act unethically? So here's an example. When I list a home, it goes on the Garden State Multiple Listing Service, the MLS, as it's known. Um, The MLS has a rule. If a seller signs a listing agreement with me to list their home on the MLS, that listing has to go live within 24 hours. Well, a lot of agents will have clients sign the listing agreement and not date it. They'll have clients sign the listing agreement and post date it for the date that they want it to come on the market. And that's a little... Why do they resist uh, posting it as soon as they have the signature? Right. Well, we would never list a home that it doesn't have the full marketing plan ready to roll out. So the sellers want to have a written agreement with you that they're moving forward with you, but the MLS wants to know that as soon as that listing is obtained, that it's available for all agents to see it. So everybody has their different way around that. Some people just don't have them sign anything until the end. 
like I said, some people, they have them sign it and maybe don't tell them that um, it's supposed to be dated and live within 24 hours. Um, what I've done is I've created a document that's just called the intent to list. And it actually says on our intent to list that it's not a legally binding document. It's just a written handshake that the seller and I are going to move forward with each other in good faith because I'm going to start spending a lot of time and money preparing their home to come on the market. And they're relying on me to start building the marketing plan to best represent their home. And then we literally send them the MLS agreement the day their house is coming on the market or 24 hours in advance of that for them to sign electronically. So it's dated exactly the same date as the beginning of the listing agreement. This week's episode of Working is also brought to you by Citrix GoToMeeting. Think about the time, money, and hassle it takes to hold a meeting. My recommendation is to meet your clients and coworkers online with Citrix GoToMeeting. It's a smarter way to meet. GoToMeeting makes it easy to meet with your team whenever you need to and wherever you are. With GoToMeeting, you can meet from any computer, tablet, or smartphone without having to worry about travel expenses or the hassle of traffic. Your team can join by clicking a link. There are no signups and no speed bumps. You just turn on your webcam, and with HD quality, it's like being in the same room. You can share screens to present, review, and get feedback in real time. Because with GoToMeeting, everyone sees what you're seeing, so your team can get on the same page and get going. To sign up for GoToMeeting today, you can get a 30-day free trial with nothing to lose. Just visit GoToMeeting.com and click the Try It Free button. Do it now and have your first meeting up and running in minutes. That's GoToMeeting.com for your free 30-day trial. What are sellers looking for in a broker? Are they just looking for someone they feel comfortable with and who they can talk to? Or do you think they're looking for something more specific or does it totally depend? You know, it completely depends on the personality. And I do a lot of studying on different personality types. You know, when I hire people, I give them personality assessments because I want to know how they're wired and what's most important and meaningful for them. I wish I could give those personality assessments to my clients so that I would know exactly what's most important for them. So I try to dig in and find out, you know, are they data driven? Are they communication driven? You know, there's just different personality attributes that come up. And so uh, the listing packet that I put together and I present to people ahead of time, I try to have it communicate information in four very different ways so that no matter what personality type I'm encountering, they've gotten the information they need ahead of time in the way that they can digest it. Uh, When you're showing the house, how quickly do you usually start getting offers from potential buyers? Each home is going to have a different reaction. Sometimes I think, oh, this one may take a couple of weeks because it's specific. Maybe it's on a golf course. Um, but you can get a pretty clear indication of whether it's you know the hot property of the weekend or not uh, by mid-late Saturday. People will have, agents will have been showing a home Friday and a lot on Saturday. And the phone will start to light up Saturday afternoon with inquiries from agents on, hey, you know, my client has some questions. Can I email them to you and get them back to me? Hey, my client um, is making an offer. How many do you have on the table so far? 
I've even had agents walk out of the broker open house and as they're leaving, they haven't even shown the house yet, they'll turn to us and say, how are you handling offers after the weekend? Mm -hmm. They just want instructions from the very beginning. So yeah, I would say midway through the weekend, if you have heard nothing, it's just crickets, then what we'll be doing on Monday morning is gathering feedback from every single agent who showed the house over the weekend and trying to ascertain why it didn't sell weekend one and then make any necessary adjustments. What are some reasons that, that other agents will give you? Is it usually related to the price or is it more like the sort of quirky aspects that you're talking about, like being on the golf course? Yeah. It, I know that if a house doesn't sell weekend one, then it probably is priced too high. So agents don't necessarily give that feedback, but they will say, my clients didn't like the layout. They didn't like the location of the bathroom. They thought the yard was too small, things like that. And sometimes there are staging things that we can change. Sometimes it's just where the house is located in the town. There's nothing we can do about that. So if we get consistent feedback that it's things that we can't change about the condition or location, then we know that the only adjustment we can make is to the price. Uh, how do you know when you have gotten enough offers that you are ready to start thinking about accepting one? And what are the factors that go into whether you want to accept an offer? I mean, obviously price is a big one, but are there other ones that I wouldn't think of? Yeah, absolutely. I want to be sure that the house is fully exposed to as many buyers as possible. So what a lot of agents will do is they'll start showings on a Thursday, an offer will come in on Friday, they'll look at it, accept it, and shut it down. I want a house to be shown all weekend long. So when an agent calls me on Friday and says, my clients want to make an offer, I say, fantastic, please do not send it to me yet. Hold on to that offer. It's going to be shown throughout the weekend. And on Monday, we will discuss offers. So Sunday night will, can often be very busy uh, where we're, I'm communicating with all the agents who have interested parties. And so let's just hypothetically say I have three agents who have clients that want to make an offer. I'll communicate to them on Sunday you know, that we're going to look at our first round of offers on Monday by 3 o'clock. And at that point, um, they'll submit their offer Monday afternoon, and I'll either sit down with my client in person or we'll have a conference call, which is usually the case these days because I can send all the information to them electronically. So I'll have a conference call at 3 o'clock on Monday. We'll look at the price, the down payment, the closing dates, if there's sales contingencies, anything else that's within each of these three offers. And we'll confirm that we actually have three offers. That's the real important part. Like, how many are we actually talking about here? Sometimes it bumps up to five. Sometimes you only have one offer as it all kind of shakes out. So we'll look at all of the offers and then I'll compile a list of guidelines for those three buyers agents. And it's basically a wish list. And I'll go back to them and say, okay, my seller wants you to bring your highest price. We would like a down payment of 20% or more. This is the closing date we want. We would like for your client to consider limiting their home inspection to only major mechanical, structural, environmental issues. We would like your buyer to consider waiving the appraisal contingency portion of their mortgage. And we just give them a wish list of, of what would make their offer the best. And then those three agents go back to their clients 
recraft their offer with all of that feedback in mind and submit what we call their highest and best offer. But what's great is each town, each area kind of has its own process. And so the really great agents in our community know that if their clients are interested, they probably will have to pull together an offer by Monday or Tuesday at the latest if they want to help their client make that offer. So we don't really have to wait any longer than that. Plus, once you have three solid offers or five solid offers over your asking price, you really shouldn't wait around. You should go ahead and proceed with accepting one of those great offers and get into attorney review um, in a timely fashion. For people who are getting a mortgage, how real is an appraisal? I guess that's kind of a philosophical question, but if someone is willing to pay $600,000 for a house, like doesn't that in a sense mean that it's actually worth $600,000? Oh, I wish it worked that way. <laughs> so like what, yes. what actually goes into an appraisal? Well, and, and it is, you know, did you say philosophical? Yeah. Yeah, it is because market value is what a pool of current buyers have decided a house is worth right now. And what's so funny is you'll see the same six families going through open houses in the same price point, and they kind of are sizing each other up, and they know that they're probably bidding against each other weekend after weekend. And yeah, they feel like the only way I can get this house is if I offer 600000 to outbid these other people, but then if the bank comes in and says, well, nothing sold in that neighborhood for 600000 it becomes a real issue. It, it's a very hard thing to navigate. So does that mean that sometimes you do have to renegotiate if an appraisal doesn't come back as yes. high as you wanted? Unfortunately, sometimes you do need to. We have a house that's closing Friday, and it had multiple offers, and unfortunately, it didn't appraise by a lot. So we were able to renegotiate the price to the list price. So the seller still got what they wanted and they weren't then required to do all the home inspection repairs and credits because that was part of our negotiation to still make it make sense for everyone. Mm -hmm. So you still try to find a way that it works for the buyers, that they have enough cash to make it happen. It works for the bank and it still makes the seller feel like they're walking away with a good sale. How long does it take to go from accepting an offer to actually closing the deal? There's a lot of new lending laws that have rolled out since October that are causing a longer timeline from accepting the offer to when you can actually close. We used to be able to close, the fastest would be in like 28 days with the mortgage, the appraisal, the inspections, attorney review, like all of those things, not in that order. <laughs> but now I feel like our quickest closing is about 40 days. And it just is taking that much more time because what the government's done is they've put in these disclosures to protect the buyer that say, once you sign the, these disclosures, you have to wait three days for the next step to be able to happen. And it's just causing more delays. It's causing things to take longer. I would say our average is 60 days. The longest I see is about 120 days. So what typically will happen is somebody will come on the market, you know, in February or March, and then they're typically closing sometime June, July, August, depending on how quickly they got the contract. And so you don't get paid until the deal is completely closed, right? No, ma'am. I don't get a penny until we've closed the transaction. What about the other stuff like the staging and the, the booklet that you put together are, and the photography? Are those basically factors into the price that you charge sellers or are the sellers paying for those as they happen? No. I pay for all of that upfront, which is why it's very important to me 
not only for them to get top dollar, but for me also to recoup the thousands of marketing dollars that I put into each and every listing. Have you ever had a deal just like fall through and you're basically out however many thousands of dollars you've spent? Absolutely. I think every agent has had that be the case, but every transaction isn't a transaction. It's actually about the people that you're serving. And for me, if I did everything I could to help that family and it didn't work out for whatever reason, I just want what's best for them. And there's always a silver lining and there's always a reason that it didn't work out. And you just have to factor in that you're going to have those kinds of expenses. And, you know, it it was a big shift for me several years ago when I stopped thinking of myself as a realtor and I started thinking of myself as a business owner and investing money back into the business, growing the business from a marketing standpoint and thinking of the financials of it, not as mine, but as the businesses. And then it makes, when that happens, it doesn't hurt because Mm -hmm. you factored that in from the beginning with your annual budget. Is the amount that sellers, brokers charge pretty much stable throughout the region or do different brokers charge different? Well, in the state of New Jersey, your listing commission is always negotiable. But it is within half a percent that most people are negotiating. Mm-hmm. I think the, the standard listing in New Jersey is 6%. Mm-hmm. There are teams out there that charge more, and there are teams out there that will do it for 5%. Mm-hmm. So it just depends on the team and the services provided. You know, I'll have people say, well, this other agent, she said she'll list my house for 5%. And I say, well, I'm actually yielding 5% higher on the sale of my listings than her her brokerage is so wouldn't you rather pay me 1% more and you know net that 4% more so i try to make people understand that when you hire a team that does everything that we do you're actually going to make a lot more money even if it might feel like you're paying a half percent or 1% more mm-hmm. And are you paying the buyer's uh, agent out of the 6% or are they being paid separately? They are paid out of the 6%. So our standard compensation to the buyer's agent is 2.5% and then 3.5% stays on the list side. And the sellers always look at me with like a furrowed brow and I say the buyer's agent's only expense is the gas that they put in their car and their time. As a listing agent, our expense is well into the thousands and thousands of dollars for all of the marketing that it takes to get your home sold. So that's why the seller, the listing side, gets that additional 1%, Mm -hmm. and that's allocated towards the marketing budget. I mean, it almost sounds like you should be making more than 1% more than the the buyer's agent, just because everything that you've described just seems like a ton of work compared to just like letting people go to open houses and letting them decide what they want to. You know, I did have somebody, I sat at a listing presentation recently, and she looked at me and she goes, wait a minute, with everything that you do, you have a team of eight people that you pay for that are going to serve every single need that we have. You're going to facilitate this entire process, pay for the entire marketing plan, make everything happen. She looked at me and she said, do you even make any money? (laughs) And in the back of my mind, I felt like, okay, this is a win because she sees the value of what we're doing and the service that we're providing. I think a lot of people, they go, oh, well, realtors get paid too much. But for our team, when we do a good job of mapping out everything that we're doing to take care of a client and their reaction is, oh my gosh, are you actually even making any money? Yeah. I mean, I was able to tell her that fortunately, yes, we have 
the opportunity to serve so many people in our community that we're doing quantity and quality. And when we're doing both of those, it actually is yielding, you know, some profitability. But then for our team, I think the other reason why she asked that is that giving back to our community is at the core of our mission as a team. And so for every single closing, our client is choosing a charity of their choice. And we're making a donation to their charity as a closing gift. So if you go to closingforacause.org, that's where we talk about that initiative. And then I eliminated all of our marketing budget for magazines and newspapers and started spending all of those funds on mutually beneficial community events, like sponsoring PTA events, sponsoring town events where it would help the town, it would help the kids in our community. And yes, it's great because people see my logo and see what I'm doing, but they also see that it's helping the schools and it's helping the community. So as soon as she said, wait, you pay for eight people, the marketing plan, and you give a ton of money back to the community, the math didn't make sense in her head. But, mm-hmm. you know, we're just in a, a very blessed uh, scenario where quality and quantity is equaling profitability and an ability to give back. Thanks for listening to this episode and this season of Working. I'm signing off from Working for Now, but we'd still love to hear your thoughts about the podcast. You can email us at working at slate.com. And you can listen to all five seasons at slate.com slash working. This episode was produced by Jason DeLeon. Our senior producer is Mike Vuolo, and our executive producer is Andy Bowers. I'm Laura Anderson. Thanks for listening. Hey, this is Gabriel Roth, and I'm the host of the Slate Serial Spoiler Special, the podcast that accompanies the second season of Serial, which debuted this week. Every week, Slate writer Katie Waldman and I will dig into the latest episode, parsing the latest developments, clues, hints, and ideas, hopefully getting us a little closer to the truth behind the case of Bo Bergdahl. So join us every week after Serial. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com, the tool that makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and goals, and the Wondersuite tools will automatically lay out your WordPress website or store in minutes. Seriously. From there, you can customize your design, pick your brand colors, and add blocks. No custom theme or coding required. You'll get content suggestions that you can keep or revise, and with Yoast SEO built in, we automatically help you get found in search engines. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins to an AI-powered help bot, our built-in tools make WordPress wonderful for everyone. Whether you're a beginner or a pro, you can join over 2 million Bluehost users. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. That's bluehost.com slash wondersuite.